Loving Father, we do thank and praise you for your words in our hands this morning. We thank you that you're a God who loves to speak. And so we come before you expectantly. Thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like or pretend or make you up. But you've revealed yourself to us in your son, the word, and in your word about him. We pray that we might see afresh this morning how glorious he is, how glorious you are. We pray that we might see afresh who we are in him and the difference that that makes. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Um, As we begin, there are two scenarios for you. First one, this. Imagine with me the day of release for the inmate who's been in prison for a decade. Imagine the feelings of, of life, of joy, of freedom. But then the next day of confusion, how, how do you now live? How do you function outside the framework where you've been at home for the last 10 years? The life that you've got used to, the routines that you had now need to change. The, the tight structure of your day is no longer there anymore. You've got blank sheets of paper to fill as you will. Imagine the caution being around people that you don't know. Imagine the need perhaps to be always watching your back. You don't quite trust anyone. You're not quite sure who you can trust. Imagine the way that whenever the prison bell rang, you knew it was time for food and you Pavlov-style salivated, ready for the next meal. And yet now you're free. And your old reality is, is gone. It's no longer your reality now. Life has changed now. And yet you hear a bell ring. And you still think it's time for food. You still think it's meal time. Second scenario, imagine the person who's had years of problems with their knee off the back of that clumsy tackle on the football field. And at the time you thought it would be okay and you just kind of tried to walk it off or limp it off and then you ended up doing more damage than it started with. And so months later you're still limping and friends persuade you to go to the doctors. They refer you for scans. You end up at hospital. The surgeons take a look. The operation happens. Then there's physio. And eventually everything gets sorted, but ten years later, if you look carefully, you're still limping. You're not limping because there's something wrong, you're limping because your body learnt to limp. And teaching it to walk again, unlearning the limp, is very hard indeed. And those two scenarios, the, the prisoner, the limper... They are us. If you are a Christian here this morning, that is you. You are wrestling with how to live now. You're wrestling with how to live with your new identity now. You are a person who is in Christ, as we saw last week. Everything's changed for you. But sometimes you feel like things haven't changed. If you were around last week, you know we've started a little three-week project on our way through Colossians. Um, And last week, if you were here, 
then you might remember it. If you weren't, then maybe get thinking now. But we, we picked an area of life or, or something that we're not satisfied with in terms of our godliness. Things that we would love to change. Maybe anger or resentment towards people. Uh, a spouse, your children, colleagues, family, whatever it might be. Maybe it's, maybe it's self-medication to numb the pain of life. You want to numb it through alcohol or food or gambling or shopping or whatever it might be. Maybe it's that irrational anxiety and panic that just plagues you at certain times, certain contexts, and you just can't get rid of it. Maybe it's patterns or habits or tendencies that you would love to shed, you would love to be behind you, but they still keep creeping up on you. And they dog us and they frustrate us and we resent them. And so from last week, if you have a look down in Colossians, we saw just two small things that began to help us as we thought through what Paul's letter to the Colossians says to us in terms of our projects. The first thing we said was remember Christ. That is, it seems Paul's favourite description of Jesus as you go through Colossians is this, this title, Christ, which means God's King, the Messiah. And it's as if he's reminding us again and again and again, Jesus is your King now. You have a new king over you now. You've you've received him as Lord, 2 verse 6. And in his kingdom, he calls the shots. Remember what it means to live for him. Remember how incredible and glorious and beautiful he is. But now you're in the realm of him being in charge. Now it's not about you, it's about him. So that was the first one. Remember Christ, remember whom you belong to now, the new realm in which you inhabit. The second one was, um, remember who you are in him now. We spent quite a bit of time last week thinking about this idea of what it means to be in Christ, union with Christ. If you weren't here, do catch up. You'll find it helpful. But the passage last time was dominated by this idea of this new versus the old. So 11 to 14, we saw we have been circumcised in him. The old flesh has gone. Or verse 12, we've been baptized in him, buried and made alive again, raised. Or verse 13, we we were dead and now we're alive. Or verse 14, we are no longer in debt to God anymore, but we're free. He's cancelled the charge. And so we saw again and again and again and again, old has gone, new has come, you are in Christ. There is a new you. And so remember to live with this mindset that engages of who we are in him. Put off the old, put on the new. And yet the bell rings and you still think it's dinner time. And you're still limping because you've learnt to limp. But you see, we are new, says Paul. Our our reality is transformed. Our status has changed. But learning to live in the new way, that's the struggle, isn't it? I know that's the struggle because I know me, and I know some of you have spoken to me this week, that that is the question we have. Unlearning and relearning is the battle. Muscle memory is very hard to change. Which is why our Christian lives can be mediocre and we can be frustrated and we can be ashamed. 
And so I guess for many of us, the question is, well, actually, is there an answer in this? Is there hope? And I think the answer we'll see this morning is yes, which is good news. But the first thing that Paul will show us is what the Colossians are doing wrong. Three dead ends, three blind alleys that they've got lost down. And then he'll show us the right way or begin to show us the right way, which will then lead into us next week as well. So first thing to say, the first message, at least from end of chapter two, is this. Don't be fooled. Remember to weigh claims in the light of Christ. Three false gospels, three false hopes that these Colossians, that even we perhaps, attempted to get lost down, to trust in. But what Paul does, as we'll see, is each time in the midst of the darkness, he puts on the torch and says, remember Christ. What are you doing down here in this dead end? Remember Christ. Remember who he is and all that you have in him. So first one then, if you look down a bit more closely, 16 to 17, he says, don't let them judge you. You see, it seems that there are people looking down on the Colossian Christians because of diets and days. They seem to be peddling the idea that you must keep certain aspects of law. That seems to be what's going on. Diets, maybe they were looking back to Jewish food laws. Maybe Leviticus 11, certain foods for different reasons were off limits for the people of God. Maybe they they still thought that these things made you unclean. If you want to be a really keen Christian, then you need to avoid certain foods, yeah? I mean, look at it, it says it in the Bible. These things are still off the menu. But then Jesus had said that wasn't the case. Mark chapter 7, for example, he had said it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, it's what's, what's inside you already that makes you unclean. Mark 7 verse 21, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus says it's not the food that goes in, it's the heart that you find there. That's the problem. So there's diet, there's days as well. Do you see verse 16? Maybe peddling the idea that if you kept certain days, certain celebrations, certain Sabbaths, then that set you apart in some way. And if you didn't, then they were being judged by those who apparently knew better. Oh, that's disappointing. I thought you were a serious Christian. I thought you were keen. Um, I thought you were committed, but, but you don't care about these things. Seems to be the kind of message. It's interesting, isn't it? Even just asking those questions, for many of us, we we don't like being looked down upon by other Christians. We don't like the idea of being made to feel small or judged in that way. We want to be seen as keen. Of course we do. But Paul says, don't let them judge you by what you eat or drink or by festivals and celebrations. He doesn't ban them, which is interesting. Paul's relationship with the law is, is a complex one. Elsewhere, he'll circumcise Timothy. Elsewhere, he'll justify his behaviour by quoting from the law. Elsewhere, he'll, he'll become all things to all people that he might save some. He doesn't ban them, but actually he explains what they really are. See verse 17? He puts the torch on. He says, look at Christ. 
These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. They were preparing us for, they were getting us ready for that greater reality of Jesus who who fulfilled the law. He perfectly kept the law. He was perfectly righteous. He is the one whom these things were all about. And now his righteousness that we remember at this Reformation time is given to us. God's righteousness, not so much about what we have to do, but what he has done and it's imputed to us. Jesus is the reality. Why would you go back to the shadows? Don't let them judge you. If they get excited about shadows, you have the reality. You have Christ. So don't let them judge you. Secondly, don't let them disqualify you. Verse 18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up by with puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. This seems to be the language of otherworldly spiritual experience of some sort. It's dressed up in humility, but it turns out they're really proud. They just end up talking about themselves. And if you're not experiencing these things, then they disqualify you. That is, that they see you as not even in the race. Ah, this kind of stuff doesn't happen in your life. This kind of stuff doesn't happen at your church. You've not experienced this? Well, maybe you're not even a believer. They seem to be saying. It may even be that these ecstatic experiences are tied up with the previous verses. Some of the writers on these verses talk about a strand within the Jewish religious world that that promoted fasting and a kind of humble, mystical asceticism that meant you ended up having visions. You deprive yourself of food. You treat your body harshly and you end up seeing things. Maybe not surprising. But that could be what's going on here. I'm struck again, though, Paul doesn't dismiss this kind of experience, though. Elsewhere, he'll go on to talk about Someone, probably him, who has seen amazing things. As he writes to the Corinthians, he says, Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Can strikingly different from these Colossians, yeah? With their puffed up false humility, they love to talk. They love to talk about themselves. Maybe looking for the next book deal. Looking for followers. Talking in otherworldly ways. In ways that impressed you. But you end up looking at them and hanging on their words. That seems to be Paul's first diagnosis with this second dead end. They're puffed up with idle notions. The second though is even more cutting. Look verse 19. The, They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. As David was reminding us through the notices, we are a body together. But these people were not a part of the body. They had lost connection with the head, that is Christ. Do you remember 119 from a few weeks ago? He is the head of the body, the church. 118. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So in everything, he might have the supremacy. 
Do you think if they've lost connection with Jesus, then following them will lead you away from him. Again, maybe we're thinking, what does this mean for us? What relevance does it have? It's slightly tricky because no one's completely sure what's going on in situation in Colossae here. At the very least, we must be a discerning people who can easily be duped into the language of spiritual experience. Just because someone says they've experienced something or it's helpful, it doesn't necessarily mean it's legit. It doesn't mean it's from Christ. I'll say that carefully. Not all so-called Christian spiritual experiences are in fact Christian. Maybe we're a bit too gullible sometimes, or a bit too naive, or trusting, or wanting to believe. Maybe we have good intentions, and we think, ah, if I just got that blessing for my project, then I would be growing and growing up in Jesus. I'm sure God will help me by pressing the fast-forward button if I go through this. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful that these people have not lost connection from the head. I think a litmus test that I always find helpful at this point is, has this thing they are promoting, has it left me with a greater love for Christ or not? Is Jesus magnified in this or has he been eclipsed by somebody else, something else? Is this really about Jesus or or kind of subtly is it actually about them? Their glory rather than his, or their brand, or their conference, or their church, or whatever it might be. Am I left with a better, more glorious, more beautiful picture of Christ? Or has he been eclipsed by them? The thing that can happen, of course, is that we can be made to feel very small. We can feel disqualified because we've not experience what they're talking about in some way. When I, in my day, when I was um, first a Christian, uh, 25 years ago or so now, in the circles that I, that I was in, it was speaking in tongues. That was where this seemed to really apply. If you didn't speak in tongues, then in some people's minds, then maybe you weren't actually a legitimate Christian. And you ended up with this kind of two-tier Christianity, and it was very dangerous People judging other people, people disqualifying others because of a spiritual experience of some sort that that you had or hadn't received. It's very damaging. So don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. Now thirdly, don't let them enslave you, verse 20 to 23. And this might be a summary of the previous two where it was all heading, or this might be a separate one. I've put it as separate, but it may well just be linked in. And it's about what you do. It's about submitting to rules. It's handling and tasting and touching, verse 21. But see how he describes those things. It's very striking. Verse 20, why as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Or 22, based on human commands and teachings. Can you get this? All this world has to offer, and it might appear wise, but all this world has to offer are essentially rules. Foundationally, that's it. That is all there is. And we love, we love our five-step plans. And we love our seven things to do. 
and we love our, our 12 steps to maturity, dot, 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 whatever it might be. We love our rules. Maybe even we love reading biographies that we might be inspired by them and copy them to see how they did it. But essentially they just become rules that we try and implement to change us. They all come down to rules. And Paul says, put the torch on. You've forgotten Christ. You've forgotten, verse 20, that you have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. You are no longer of this world. Don't try and use the methods of this world to change you, he says. They won't grow you in Christ-likeness. They just don't work. But it's all the world has to offer. And he summarises them 23, self-imposed worship, false humility, harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. But when Christians want to be more committed, we make rules for ourselves. Don't we? That's the natural veer of our heart. I've been there so many times. What rules have you made to help you, but they end up enslaving you and judging you? There are many out there. Many of them have lots of good wisdom behind them. Discipline is a really good thing. Don't mishear me. But maybe verses like this make us rethink the things that we do, or at least the motivations behind them, and the things that those disciplines become for us. Maybe that's a good question for home groups this week. Working through the difference between healthy habits and rules. There's a great example of this from um, now a retired American pastor, a guy called John Piper. And he spoke a famous sermon. I thought it was a famous sermon, but actually it's not a famous sermon. It was a talk at a Thursday night church meeting in 1982. And it was called this. It was called Flesh Tanks and Pea Shooter Regulations. Flesh tanks and pea shooter regulations. And it was the, the way that we set up rules and we become legalists because we want to fight the flesh. We want to deal with our sin. And our little rules are like pea shooters. And our flesh is like a tank. And our little legalistic pea shooters do, do very little in the face of enormous tanks. Actually, the context of his church, and I didn't know this, but it was they wanted to change an amendment in the church constitution to say that it said that you could not be a member if you ever drank alcohol. And his point was this. These rules, they have an appearance of, of wisdom, but they are adding to the commands of Christ. And at their root, they don't help you grow. They just make us legalists. That we judge each other, we disqualify each other, we look down on each other. That is not the way to deal with the flesh. But we are so prone to fighting with pea shooters. It is extraordinary. I, I think it's something to do with being in these bodies, in this world. It's very natural for us. It's the way we think things work. We think they are the answer to growing in godliness or 23, to restraining sensual indulgence. Food laws or ecstatic worship or rules that are dead ends. They don't work because we are new in Christ. They are pea shooters. But the bell rings 
and you still think it's dinner time. And you're limping because your body has learnt to limp. And so we say, come on then, Paul. How do we grow? What is the answer? How do we deal? How do we change our sensual indulgence, verse 23, to use his language? If we're not to be fooled, what are we to do? We're to not be forgetful. Remember, you have been raised with Christ, 3, verse 1 to 4. There's a bit of me, and I reach chapter 3, and I'm thinking, is that it? Paul, I know you say there are no silver bullets, but I was hoping for a bit more than that. Really? Let's have a look. Jesus had already been part of chapter 2. We have seen that he is the torch in the midst of the dark alleys. We have seen that where they've gone for diets and days, they were simply shadows, point to the reality, where we've seen verse 19, they had been disconnected from the head. Or verse 20, he's the one whom they had died with and were united to. So Christ has been there, but here he now focuses in on the Lord Jesus and where he is and who we are in him and why that matters. Let me read them again. 3 verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's Paul's answer? Paul's answer is hearts and minds on Christ, where your life is now hidden, verse 3, and the Christ, verse 4, who will come back one day, the hope of glory. Just before we jump in, a couple of things structurally to note. Notice that this is the flip side of 2.20. So if you want to flip back a page to 1.183, remember you have died with Christ, 2 verse 20. You've died to the forces of this world, so be done with them now. 3 verse 1, since then you've been raised with Christ. So set your minds there. So the first thing to say. The second is this, and as maybe I've already said... If we're looking for things to put into practice, if we're looking for things to do, if we're looking for rules, we're going to be disappointed. Because it's much more about dealing with our foundational focus, remembering our reality and being shaped by that reality for now. So we saw last week that we are in Christ. And where is Christ now? Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ascended, risen. And so where are we now if we are in Christ, Paul says, then you are united with him. You are hidden with Christ in God, verse 3. You are joined to him forever. That is the real you. And yet you look at me strangely because we are sat in a primary school gym on uncomfortable chairs, waiting for a sermon to finish, That we might have coffee. How can Paul say we have been raised with Christ? How can Paul say that we are hidden in God? That's one of the tensions for the believer right through the Bible. 
It's the tension that we have received him as Lord. And at that point, you are simultaneously then in Christ and you are in Oxford or wherever you live. Maybe we can put it like this. Maybe maybe we are at the right hand of the Father in principle now as we are in Christ. But one day we will be there in practice when we die. But because Jesus has been raised, because we are in him, then that is our true home. That is where we belong now. That is where we are now. And if this is new for you, maybe there are some confused faces, so maybe it is. This takes some getting used to, but it's, it's vital that we acknowledge and we wrestle with this tension of being in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, and in Oxford. And what that means. There's an old and new, and there's a new you. It means when the bell rings, we still think it's dinner time. It means we're still limping because our body has learnt to limp. But that is the old you, says Paul. That is not the new you. It's interesting as well, there's, there's language of being hidden and appearing, verse 3 and verse 4. It's a bit confusing at first, but, but it means we have died and risen to new life in Christ. But in a sense, our new resurrection life is still hidden, it's still in him. Our bodies are still subject to decay, our hearts are still wandering, we are still wrestling with the old us. But when Christ appears, our glorious new life will appear too. Verse 4. We will have resurrection bodies. Our new life will be seen perfectly in practice. And so Paul says, put your hearts and your minds on those present realities now. That is the answer. And yet too often we think about the old us, don't we? Too often we listen to the old us. Because the bell rings and we think it's dinner time. Because we're still limping because we've learnt to limp. But the old us is dead. The new us is in Christ seated at the right hand of God. And so the Christian life is a journey of becoming now who we truly are in Christ. With minds and hearts set there. The challenge for me in preparing this has been that question of how much is my heart set on things above where Christ is? When was the last time I practically, deliberately did that? When was the last time you practically and deliberately did that? Because if you're anything like me, maybe that is why we've got so much growing up to do. He says, set your heart there. The heart is the thing that that shapes and controls you. The writer of Proverbs says, guard your heart for everything we do flows from it. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. But where's my treasure then? If my heart is not there very often. Makes me uncomfortable. Too often my heart is down here. And the bell rings and I think it's dinner time and I'm still limping because I've learnt to limp. Hopefully you're beginning to see how some of this helps us in terms of our, our projects and, and that thing that you've got 
that you're looking to deal with, to grow in, to, to grow up in. A bit more directly though, what does it mean to set our hearts and minds on Christ? How do those things change us? I think the first thing must just be clear that we are joined up beings. We are joined up people. We don't just do things or say things mindlessly, but from our hearts and our minds, so come our actions, so come the things that we live for. And of course, that's why legalism, that's why rules never work. Rules don't change us. They just modify our behaviour. They just deal with the symptoms of our broken hearts. They deal with the symptoms of the deeper disease. Parents, how often do we try and modify our children's behaviour rather than dealing with hearts? So I take it from verses like this, and we'll have more next week, but we need to, to see To see genuine change, we need to be careful where we put our minds and where we put our hearts, where the focus is. It's remembering our true identity. Look at verse 5, for example, and you see how that pans out. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You know, you've died already. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, joined to him. You don't belong to this world anymore. So put off the earthly type stuff. So one thing, if you want something to do this week, because we like rules and we like tick boxes, set your hearts on Christ. Put your hearts there this week. Remember him. Remember his beauty, remember his love, remember his power, remember his glory. I know I need to guard my heart, I know I need to consider where my treasure is. But how often proactively do I put my heart there, remembering who I am, seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father? An example, if your your project is self-medication, that is, when life gets too stressful... When life gets too difficult, when you want to numb the pain in some way, when you want to just check out from reality, whether it's through food, drink, social media, pornography, gambling, drugs, whatever it might be for you. When you want to do that thing to numb the pain, how does setting your hearts on things above help us? Again, perhaps more stuff for home groups but begin to think through who you truly are in him where you truly are where your home truly is remember all you have in him remember that you have fullness in him remember that he is good and he loves us and you are forgiven and redeemed remember 1 15 to 20 his his power and might and majesty remember 3 verse 4 that one day he will come back that you are just here for a bit And if you say, well, is that just a question of being, pretending to be somebody else? Is that just a question of of faking it? I think Paul would say to us, no. No, be who you really are now. Don't fake it, 
But remember who you really are and how that pans out in reality. And so this week, as you face that situation, as you face that context, as you face that thing where normally you just look back and regret, that trigger that brings on that reaction that means you wish, you wish it wasn't there, then remember, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Live in light of that. Remember, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you've died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we confess we find these things hard. Because far too often we still think in worldly ways. Far too often we love the rules. We love human commands and teachings and regulations. We're duped by them because we think they are wise. And so we pray that you would help us. Help us, please, to set our hearts on things above. To remember who we are in Christ, seated at the right hand of you. Help us, please, to set our minds there. And as we increasingly get to grips with the true nature of our new identity... then would that reality trickle down into everyday life? Change our hearts, we pray. Be at work in us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.